Well, the title of the message this morning is, Is Jesus Really Your First Love? And as you maybe ponder that question a minute, <clears throat> it's an easy answer if you're a follower of Christ just to say, well, of, of course, he's my first love, right? But today's passage will press into that a bit, and I believe it'll press into your heart as it did mine over the past few days. You know, I was thinking, as we'll read here in a moment, this second chapter of Revelation, last book in the Bible, if you need to uh, get a little direction. So go to the back of your Bible. And I was thinking about this as, as Jesus speaks to the seven churches. The first one is the church at Ephesus. And it's kind of like one of those uh, performance review things that most of us have had. You've had a performance review, right? You, you kind of go in before your boss and it's a time where they look at your uh, job performance and they give you an evaluation. It might be one of those since, uh, circumstances as well if you're dating or even married, those times you uh, have a discussion with your spouse about how well you're doing as a husband wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, but they always kind of start like this. Performance reviews or those discussions. Here's all the good things that you're doing, right? It's just like, yeah, thanks. You're doing a great job at this and I really appreciate that. And, and when I consider you as an employee, things are going pretty good. I appreciate your effort. But what's the next word that always comes out? The little three, yeah, but. But is the next word. And then you get the bad news about how things are really going. Well, we'll read about that in a moment as Jesus speaks to followers in the church of Ephesus. I was reminded as I thought through this, I remember my very first job performance review. I grew up on a small farm in Western Ohio. I'd only worked on a farm, baling hay and doing those kinds of things. And I decided that uh, I could make more money and it would be a whole lot more fun to get a job in town at the local diner. And so I was like sixth grade and I talked to my parents and somehow convinced them to take me in on Saturday and Sunday to work at the diner. And I was gonna be a busboy. Okay, all you have to do is clean off the dishes and wipe the table, all that kind of stuff. Pretty easy, right? And I said, man, 75 cents an hour? It's a deal. I'm not exaggerating. It tells you how old I am, right? So like, like I worked 10 hours a week. I made $7.50 before taxes. So, uh, and then, then I got to share the tips. But you know, the first couple weeks seemed like they went pretty well and the owner of the diner said, uh, hey, stick around after you work today. I wanna to talk to you. And I thought, cool, I'm gonna get a raise or something, right? And uh, I remember sitting down and talking to him and saying, uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you want to talk about? He goes, well, I wanna talk about you being the busboy and how well that's going. And I thought, well, he's gonna say I'm doing a good job. He said, you know, for the most part, you're getting the tables cleaned and, you know, I appreciate you being here on time, which that was strictly up to my parents. And he said, uh, but there's some issues. 
The, the waitresses, you know, have to constantly tell you to come out of the back room and clean up the tables. Uh, but you don't seem like you really like doing this job too well, so you're fired. You know, it was my very first job, two weeks, and I got fired. But I went into it thinking, you know, I'm doing this great job until all those people around me would have said, you hate this job, which I basically did. Today's passage is uh, one of those times in which we'll read that Jesus confronts his followers with kind of this review of their life in relationship with him. I want you to look with me this morning to Revelation chapter 2, the first letter to one of the seven churches that are written. Let me first say that as we dig into this, it's important for us to know the Apostle John writes this from the Isle of Patmos, which is off the coast of modern-day Turkey, and he's in exile there. And um, while he's in exile, uh, the Lord speaks to him and gives him a message about not only the end times, but the first part of this, about confronting followers of Christ. Let me pray before we begin. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that as we dig into these passages, you have things you want to say to us. You have things you want to confront us with, ways in which you want us to consider our relationship with you. That's really what takes place every Sunday, but also needs to take place each and every day as we come before you. But this morning, as we gather corporately, we would ask that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see this morning as you speak to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. The set of verses this morning are spoken to followers of Christ. Before we read these verses, I want us to think about this for a moment. What is your view of church? Do you see it more as a building or a place we go, in our case, a warehouse? Do we see it simply as a corporate gathering of people? Something that's kind of uh, disconnected from a personal responsibility? Well, that's not the case as we read our passages. The church is made up of Jesus' people, those who profess faith in Christ, who have given their life to follow him and truly those who love him. Individuals like us this morning. The danger in reading this passage in so much of a corporate view is you'll miss the significance of what Jesus is calling the hearers to consider. Revelation chapter 2. We'll read the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently 
and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But here comes that word. What is it? But. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. A couple observations right at first, and one thing that will be helpful for us. As you know, this book, this last book of scriptures, filled with many images, it's figurative many times, very illustrative. But as you read scripture, a lesson that will be helpful will be always to remember scripture interprets scripture real quick, and this is not a big rabbit trail, but look at chapter one, verse 20, just before what we read in verse one. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and this is Jesus speaking, remember, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the imagery we just read about is Jesus himself the head of the church, his church, that he established, no Jesus, no church of Jesus this morning, to worship him, to love him, to serve him. And so it gives us an image in this first verse of Jesus being very serious about making a statement and confronting people. Now, who in the world is this angel? Quickly, commentators differ. Most commentators would agree it's probably two things. This one, mostly. Referring to angels as a messenger, so Jesus speaking to the leaders or a pastor at a church saying, pay attention. You need to take this message to the people of my church. Pay attention. Here's the message. He says, I'm the one He is the Christ who is speaking. He says, I'm the one who walks. He's the one that is omnipresent. He's the one who is a part of his church, not separate. And he's active. And he says, I know. He's the one that knows all things. Nothing escapes Jesus. He says, I know what you do. But more importantly, I know in your heart what's missing. What did he know? He knew their works, their toil, their perseverance, the text says, the good and the bad. But he also has complete knowledge of their hearts. Again, this morning, this is an intimate statement that Jesus is making to this leader to take back to Jesus' people. He evaluates them on the good, for sure. 
he disliked, they did not participate in, or he liked, they did not participate in the culture of Ephesus, a very thriving commerce, a place of trade, a place of multiple gods. One of the seven wonders of the world was present there, the temple of Artemis. And so he commends his people for not participating in all those things, all the things that could make them stray, that could look like part of culture. And on the outside, they looked like they were doing a pretty good job, right? But the word, but, shows up again. Yeah, that's good. You're not worshiping multiple gods. It's good that you're separating yourself from the society that you live in. You know how to rightfully, through Scripture, identify false apostles, false gospels, false teachings. And that's all good, but there's a problem. This three-letter word is used to signify a very serious problem. You see, when you looked at their actions, their gatherings, when you see how they function in life, it seems to me when I read this, it would have been something like, well, it's easy to know what you're against, but maybe not so easy to notice what you're for. You ever found yourself like that? You know, over the past three years, our culture has been inundated with that. Easy to find out what everybody's against, right? Read their Facebook page, watch their Twitter, watch what rallies they participate in. Here's what we're for. But I didn't hear very often who they loved, mostly. Here's what we're against, but who are we for? Because we love Jesus. And the word that is used in verse 4 says, I have this against you that you have abandoned. That word means to disregard, to lay aside something, to go away from and leave behind something that they once were a part of. Their faith had been cold and impersonal. And Jesus confronts them about it. Now, real quick, doesn't say they lost their first love, okay? Doesn't say that you're no longer a follower of me. It's not saying that. Those aren't the words. But it says you abandoned. You walked away and can come back. And that's what Jesus is going to invite from them. You left your first love. It's a relational problem. It's an affection problem. Their relationship with Christ had turned mostly to duty and actions. Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, if you're truthful, you would say yes. You know, by outward appearance, these were good church people. They, they knew the right things. They'd been in Sunday school or small groups or growth groups or whatever they were a part of. And they knew the right things. But the problem wasn't a knowledge thing, was it? 
The problem was an affection problem. Righteous works had replaced love for the righteous Christ. Jesus wants from us more than just words or actions. He says, I have this against you. And he confronts their heart. The sin of relational apathy with Jesus was serious. You know, passion for Jesus sometimes disguises itself in religious activity and actions, doesn't it? Oh, it's easy to think things are going just fine by watching what people are doing. But a close, intimate discussion with them would probably reveal something else. The sin of relational apathy is what Jesus is speaking to. Maybe you would be so bold to say, yeah, I can get into that if I'm not careful. You know, I come to church, check. I bet God's pretty happy with me. I made three Sundays out of four, which I guess the stats now are two Sundays for most people. So check. Jesus is probably happy. Look, I'm serving in five ministries. Check. I bet God's happy with me. Look how regular I am at sitting down and reading my Bible in devotions. I I can hurry up and sit down and get there's a check. Look how I avoid being a part of sinful things in my society. Check. Look how I speak and am against the wrongs of the world. Check. And we think God is probably pretty happy with us. And Jesus would probably say to us, but the same thing I have against you. Where's your love for me? Where's the love that burns deep in your heart? Here's what I'm talking about. Mark chapter 12, as well as Luke and Matthew, writes about a time when the religious leaders come to Jesus and have this interaction with him. And here's what they ask Jesus. What's the most important commandment? Do you remember it? What's the most important commandment? What is the thing I need to what? Do. And he flips the script. He said, here's the most important thing. It's the love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And if that's not enough, love people as well. He didn't give them a list of things to do. He says the most important thing is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. That's hard to do. Guess what? As a matter of fact, that's something that Jesus says that we never fully accomplish in this life. 
Even on the very best day, I've never loved Jesus with all of my heart or all my strength. I, I, I want to, but I never get there. Even on my best day, I don't love others the way Jesus loved others. But that's what he says is the most important thing. And so he says, this I have against you. You have left your first love. You have abandoned your first love. Let me give you three possible reasons as I look at this text that they left or abandoned their first love. First, looks like in the first part of verse 2, they had substituted works of religion for love of Christ. He says, I know your works, I know your toil, your hard-working efforts for doing good. So it's like Jesus saying, I, I notice all of those things, that's great. You know, you're not lazy, you don't sit on the sidelines. I, I see the things that you're working at. But you're missing the right motive for doing those. It's not because by doing them, I'll be more happy with you. But when we do them for the right reasons, it's because we love Christ so much. Second, I think, they substituted knowledge of religion for the love of Christ. Second part of verse 2 says, you have tested those you had the right measures, you had good doctrine, you knew the gospel and you applied the test. And they had head knowledge and they knew how to spot what was wrong, what was in error. That's important, don't get me wrong. But in Paul's letter to these same folks, the Ephesian church in chapter three, Paul writes this, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. If you're making a note, it's chapter 3, verse 19. The love of Christ surpasses knowledge. So even way back then, it was obvious they were struggling with this head knowledge instead of a love. Friends, we have to guard ourselves from having this academic approach to God in our life. That study, 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 sit in class, sit in class, sit in class. Great, please do so you grow up. But simply for head knowledge, then we're off track. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, Paul says, Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Third thing that I see that's happening is they substituted religious fervor for the love of Christ. Religious fervor for the love of Christ. And we see it in verse 3. You're enduring patiently, Jesus said. You're bearing up for my name's sake. They had concern for not only the gospel of Christ, but the person of Christ in representing him well, they're probably persecuted, tempted, tried, but yet they're standing firm. But there's a deceptiveness that happens when our hearts begin to think 
just separating ourselves from the thoughts of the world and the ways of the world is what God wants. You know what happens when we do that? When all those things are void of love and your religious fervor is what drives you uncontrollably, you're a legalist. You're a legalist. Oh yeah, I'm gonna look down on them because they're not as mature as I. Or I'll look down on the society I live in because they're not thinking like Christians. Well, duh, they're not Christians. Religious fervor began to be substituted for the love of Christ. Friends, we can be so busy being against things, so busy at church even, so busy in our life that our marriages and our families suffer. We leave behind the love we had for Jesus and cease to live as disciples who love the world around us that don't know him. These folks weren't complaining. They weren't griping about the society they lived in. They're standing firm. But Jesus said there's a problem. There's a problem. You know, true love is seen. It's obvious. Somebody who truly loves Jesus will want more and more and more of Jesus. You, you want more and more time with Christ. I love my wife. We've been married 42 years. But if I simply wash the dishes, simply vacuum the house, simply do tasks around the house, she's not going to think I love her deeply. I have kids and I have grandkids. I want to be around my wife. I want to be around my kids. I want to be around my grandkids more and more because I love them. And I can't allow other things to substitute the time I need with them. Even serving in church. Now, let me be careful. Should we be serving? Yes. Should we be careful that we're doing that properly with proper boundaries, yes. But just a couple of years ago, I retired from full-time ministry, 25 years. And if you would have asked me before that, how's your love for Jesus, I would have said great. But you know the first year of not preaching or leading with other ministries or churches began to feel like there's something missing. You know, my love for Christ was too connected to the things I wanted to do for Christ, right? So it happens to all of us. So what's Jesus saying? Well, he's calling him out on it. There, there's a sin Jesus has identified, and therefore he commands a response. The loving Catch this merciful Christ says, come on back to me. Come on back. You wandered, you strayed. You made me just something you add to your life, maybe. Or are you doing all these things? But I, I want time with you. Come back, Jesus says. 
And three actions he calls for in verse 5. First is this. He says, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember. Think back to your original passion for me, Jesus says. Pause and think about what it was like when you first became a follower. How, how passionate your heart was to be with me. I, I remember when I became a Christian, I couldn't wait to learn more about Christ and be in his presence and with other people's that are following Christ. There was, there was a deep, burning passion. And so Jesus says, remember. Hey, remember what, what that was like? Do you remember in your own life what that was like? We need to. Well, how do we remember? What would be something that we could make a part of our life to help us remember? Well, if you've been here since the beginning of the church, you'll hear this phrase, remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself regularly. You want your love and your passion to get back to where it was. Remember the gospel. The fact that God, who is rich in mercy and love, looked down on us, people who by nature and by choice have decided we would desire the things that God created more than we would desire God the creator. We, we do that. that. That God being rich in mercy deals with sinners like us who have disregarded him and said, I will make it possible for you to come back to me and I'll do that by sending my son Christ who will live the perfect life, who will die the perfect death, who will rise again. And now, for anyone who confesses and follows him will have his righteousness imputed to us. Nothing that we do, only what he did. You want to remember how to have a passion for Christ, remember Christ, the one who walked this earth, the one who hung on a cross, and he did it willingly, taking all of our sin and all of our punishment, puts the goodness of God in perspective and my sinfulness in perspective. Second thing that we see in verse five is the way back is to repent. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent. We have this strange, I think, um, thought about repentance in this day and age. We think that's something you do on the front side to become a Christian. Oh, I, I repented. Now I'm good. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, look, I have this against you. You need to repent. You need to confess that not loving me the way you should is a sin. You need to ask for forgiveness. You need to restore what's broken with me. I'm merciful. I'm full of grace. I'm kind and I want you to do that. Come on back. Don't be afraid. 
To repent requires a no-excuse confession in your life and in my life. I had to go back to saying, yeah, maybe my love for you is not as hot as it should be. To repent means to change directions, means to go back to making Jesus your first love. It means you have to, in your heart, say, yeah, I got some spiritual apathy. I have some spiritual apathy. And Jesus said, repent. And then the third thing he says is repeat in verse 5. He says, go back to doing the things that you did before. Repeat. Do the things you did when Christ was your first love. In other words, put Jesus back in his proper place. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 said, says this, Above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Don't compromise your time alone with Jesus. Don't try and squeeze him in a little bit whenever it works for you. Don't remove yourself from being with other believers who can spur you on to loving Jesus more. When's the last time you simply got a few moments away and sat and were quiet and listened for your Jesus to speak to your heart. He has a lot to say. It's easy to go to him with a lot of speaking. When's the last time you simply sat at the feet of Jesus and listened? Go back to a pure form of loving Christ. And when you do, you'll want more of Christ. You'll remember his goodness and his love. You'll remember the peace. You'll remember the joy that your Savior gives. Verse 5. Jesus said, here's the option for you. You can come back. You can remember you can repent and you can give back and repeat and do the right things. Then he says, uh, if not, I'm going to remove your lampstand. This means that if you continue to make your faith about the wrong things, Jesus will not be able to use you or them as a church. Does it mean their salvation is gone? Hear me clearly, but it does say that I'm not able to use you if you don't represent who I am because you've made this about duty. Here's what's interesting. Ephesus is in modern day Turkey. Once very well evangelized. And today, 98% of Turkey is Muslim. Do you think they came back to their first love? Doesn't seem to. Seems like the call to come back wasn't being heard. To you and I, Jesus says, hey, if I'm not your first love, I'm not able to use you much in my kingdom. 
because you misrepresent the wrong things. You're not connecting people to me, but more to church and religious activities. Maybe our families are in turmoil. Maybe our friendships are strained. Maybe our workplace has some issues that got us agitated. Do people see us deeply in love with Christ? Do our families see us deeply in love with Christ? Do our kids see mom and dad deeply in love with Christ and investing ourselves into them? Do our grandkids see it? Do those in your CGs see it? Do our neighbors see it? Are we more busy doing things at church and don't have time to connect in our communities? Jesus doesn't want more legalists. He doesn't want more religious zealots. He wants us to live a life that people can see how much we love him, how much we love his gospel, and how much we love the world around us. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear. The one who loves Christ, believes the gospel, is devoted to what Jesus will easily hear these words that are spoken. The interesting thing is, if you're not a follower of Christ, these words don't have much of an impact on you, right? It's pretty easy just to, okay, sure. Jesus is saying, make your heart passionate and loving toward me. Act on it. And here's the great reward, he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, in other words, the one who loves me, who lives his life in relationship and love with me, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Reference to the end of this book, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where the tree of life is present and God's presence is for all time now with his people. How would you stand up in this same evaluation this morning? What would Jesus say to you? I'm still your first love or you're apathetic? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we have, um, we've not only been challenged, but we've been convicted. There are times in our life which our passion and our love for you certainly burns hot. But if we're truthful, there are times in which the things of this world crowd in 
and it's simply able just to think the right things or do the right things without doing them because of a great and a deep love for you. I know this morning your Holy Spirit has spoke to our hearts. Your Holy Spirit has maybe been this moment convecting us. Take a deep look. Take a deep look. Do we have ears to hear? Will we be honest with you? I would pray and give thanks to you today, O Jesus, for your mercy and for your grace, which means you respond by saying, come on back. My, my arms are open. You're my child. I love you. Come on back. Spend some intimate times with me. Remember how good I am. And when you do that, your love for me grows and your love for others grows because you want to be more like me. So do your work in our hearts this morning, O oh Christ. Amen.